Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we're in chapter 11, the second half, and I want to do a little bit of review since we weren't here last week because we had off for Thanksgiving, which was good to have a break. And so you may not have been here, maybe you were. Um, Let me just kind of go over chapter 11. We talked about, at least my interpretation of chapter 11, was that it's highly symbolic, that the temple that John measures is a metaphor for the church. The church is the temple of God. We talked about the two witnesses not being literal people, but actually symbolic also of the church. Because it said there that they were also the olive trees and the lampstands, which was symbolic of the church going out in power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. And so they go out, the church goes out to proclaim the gospel. There's always going to be opposition to the gospel. Sometime toward the very end, the church is going to be so persecuted that the world's going to force it to go underground. And they're going to think the church is dead. And just when they think the church is dead and all the Christians are killed off, they're going to have a huge party and they're going to celebrate that the Christians are no longer around to cause problems. And at that point, God's going to vindicate the church by resurrecting the church or rapturing the church up to heaven and every eye will see Jesus whom they have persecuted and the church will be vindicated and we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. That was what we talked about the last time. Okay, now we get to the seventh trumpet. Okay, so let's talk about the judgments here. We've got the seven seal judgments. We've got the seven trumpet judgments. We've got the seven bowl judgments. And always it goes like one, two, three, four, five, six, and then there's a pause, and then it gets to seven. So we've had a pause, and now we're at the seventh trumpet. So chapter 11, starting in verse 15, we're going to read that. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that, and then we're going to jump into chapter 12 because um, 12 is probably the most important chapter in the book as far as how it relates to us and how we live our lives faithfully to Christ. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay. So what we have here is... It almost sounds like it could be the end again because God's kingdom is coming to to reign. 
His kingdom is taking over the kingdoms of this world. And what you have here is an allusion to Psalm 2. Now, I have, I'm going to have it up on the screen. I'm going to have it on your sheet, but it may be better just to turn to Psalm 2. You guys look. So, verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. The nations raged. That's, that's directly from Psalm 2. So, you can look at it on your sheet. You can look at it. Let's just turn to it. I think it's, we're going to look at the entire Psalm. Um, I have it on your handout, and I have it here on the screen, but let's just, um, let's just read Psalm 2. And how does, how does Psalm 2 start in relation to how Revelation 11.18 starts? How does the Revelation 11.18 start? The nations raged. Okay, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, that is what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to Jesus as the Messiah. What this psalm is saying is that God has anointed Jesus as king, and one day Jesus will return and have authority over the nations. And there's a warning at the end of that psalm that says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's the point of the psalm? If you take refuge in Jesus, the king, you will be blessed with eternal life. If you don't kiss the son, if you don't submit to the son, if you don't bow before Jesus, you will experience the wrath of God. And that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 11. The wrath of of God is coming on the nations to be judged. So this is a hymn that the elders are singing. So verse 17 and 18, is it look like a hymn, does it look like a psalm or a hymn in your Bible? Is it set apart in poetry in your Bible? Okay, so that means it's a song that they're singing in heaven. It's, it's, it's a hymn, not a her, a hymn, H-Y-M-N. You got it now? Make sure you're awake out there. It's a hymn of thanksgiving for God's sovereignty over the nations. Okay, so let's just stop real quick. We, we live in a culture where when you look around, does it appear that the nations have sway over the world? Especially if you live in North Korea or you live in Iran or Iraq or places where nations rage? Does the United States rage? 
Are there kings and rulers and authorities and people in this world, dictators, powers that are, that are standing opposed to God? Yes. One day what's going to happen to all of the opposers of God? They are going to fall before the king because his wrath is coming. So the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, on Tuesday nights, every other Tuesday night, our, our small group, our growth group of our 20-somethings are going through Daniel. And it's amazing how much Nebuchadnezzar has to learn about God's sovereignty. He's the most powerful king in the whole world at that time. But listen to Daniel 2.44. In those days, the kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and the kingdoms, and these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom is going to break all the other worldly kingdoms apart, and his kingdom is going to stand forever. Now, Nebuchadnezzar. Go back and read Daniel chapter 4. It's a weird story. You remember what he did? He goes out on his tower palace. And he looks out and says, look what I built. All praise to me, Nebuchadnezzar. And right as that is coming out of his mouth, the Lord strikes him with this mental illness where he goes around like a, like a cow chewing grass and he gets long hair like feathers and, and claws. And this happens for seven years. He roams around and then all of a sudden he looks up to heaven and he comes out of this mental illness. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, uh, 34-35. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say to Him or stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That's a statement of God's absolute sovereignty over the nations. Zechariah 14.9 and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. On that day. First okay. Corinthians 15, 25-26, For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Romans 2, 5-8, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What I'm trying to say is, is there going to be a day of wrath for those who do not believe in Jesus? People don't want to talk about that, but very clearly there is going to be a day of wrath. And Paul says it's a day of wrath and fury. Verse 18, back here in our main text in Revelation, the nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged has come for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Okay. Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow. I thought Jesus was a Galilean peasant that walked around with feathered hair and carried a lamb and spoke with the British accent and never hurt anybody. <laughs> what does it say here about Jesus? He's going to come back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the book of Revelation, there is a day of wrath to come. Okay, So, verse 19, we see heaven and this symbolic Ark of the Covenant within the temple there with flashes of thunder and peals, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and earthquake and this, the, the temple in heaven. So verses 15 through 19, this little hymn here, it's meant to give us great confidence and hope that in the midst of great persecution and opposition and satanic oppression of the church, Christ is still sovereign he rules, he will faithfully carry out his covenant promises and destroy his enemies. All right, we're coming up upon Christmas. What is the most famous Christmas piece of music ever in the history of Christmas music? Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah is probably the greatest composition of music in the Western world in the past hundreds of years. This section of Revelation is the impetus for the Hallelujah Course. And He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Where does it say there? Verse 15, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. King of kings, Lord of... I mean, that makes you... I mean, you, stand, you stand up during the Hallelujah course. Gives you goosebumps. Um, so, chapter 11 ends with the scene of worship. Remember what I said about Revelation? There's more scenes of worship in Revelation than there are in any other really New Testament book. The elders here are worshiping God for His absolute faithfulness, His sovereignty to vindicate the church, to rule and reign forever, to judge the world. Okay? God will do that. But has that happened yet? Has the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ? No. Has that final day of wrath come? Okay? So here's the question, the plaguing question that we've got to ask. Why does the church experience heartache, suffering, persecution, opposition, and even martyrdom if Christ has won the victory? The answer to that comes in chapter 12. Before you go to 12. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait before we go to 12. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, the temple of God was opened in heaven. Mm-hmm. Of his covenant was seen in the temple. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what happened to that thing? It ended up... <laughs> is it the real Ark of the Covenant, or is it... Or is it... Or is it did Indiana Jones find it and he stuck it? No, I'm just joking. Um, yeah, is it the real Ark of the Covenant? Is it symbolic? Um, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant represents the Lord's dwelling place. His law was placed in there. The cherubim were on top of there, the mercy seat. It was the whole, it was the epitome of the Old Testament presence of God. And so, you know, the imagery there... You couldn't see it. No. I mean, no one could see it other right, than the high priest. Right. And all of a sudden, you can see it. Yeah, which means that you are no longer... Like, and we'll get to this at the end of Revelation. The new heavens and the new earth are in a exact cube, dimension-wise. The only other structure in the Bible that's an exact cube is the Holy of Holies. Who in the Old Testament could go into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. In the new heavens and new earth, who gets to go into the Holy and Holies? All of us, because we'll have direct access to the very presence of Christ and not be incinerated. Yeah. That's a great promise. What about the ark? I'm waiting. You're waiting for the ark. What's your question? Is that the real ark? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It was seen. That's all it tells us. It doesn't tell us how it got there. It doesn't tell us if God... I mean, obviously, there's no need for the Ark of the Covenant right now because Jesus is the final... He's the Word of God. He's the law of God. He fulfilled the law of God. He's the sacrifice. He's the propitiation. Uh, There's no longer a need for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, what the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant is, is a symbol of God's presence, a symbol of God's sacrificial system. So I don't know the answer to it, Paul, to, answer, to tell you the truth. Is it the literal Ark of the Covenant there? Is it symbolic? When we get to heaven, I guess we'll find out. Okay. I don't know if that answers your question. Right. It probably doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't really answer. No, I know it doesn't answer your question. Right. Uh, well, I, I have the answer one of these Yeah. Questions. Yeah, there's just some and things. That, we have lightning, noise, and thunderings, and earthquakes, and yeah. you know, all of a sudden everything's gone to pot. Yeah, again. Right in, I mean, before we even know we've got the covenant, we got everything up there, then all of a sudden, what's yeah. this? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the, the the part of it is is that because it's the temple in heaven. Remember back in chapter four where God was at the throne and there was flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and stuff coming from His throne. I think that happens in the throne room of God anyway, just because of His powerful presence. Okay. So let's get to chapter 12. And it does not have its difficulties in interpretation because there again are some different schools of thought. And we will be fun to dive into that. Let me just say this. Chapter 12 is a turning point in the book of Revelation. Before the last seven plagues, which are the bold judgments, which we have to get, wait until we get to chapter 16, John takes a long interlude to explain the underlying cause of hostility against the church. So let me just ask you a question. Is the church, God's people, an object of hostility right now? Has it always been? Will it continue to be? Will it get worse or better? Depends on your view, but most of us here would say it's going to get worse. 
Okay? Jesus said this in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Should we, as God's people, expect anything less than to be treated the way Jesus was treated? Especially if we bear the name of Christ. Yes, Cindy. It makes sense that this is the, the turning point. It makes sense that this is a long interlude because I'm thinking of whose audience is. And his audience are, are persecuted churches. It's the persecuted churches, yeah. Yeah, this is the, this is the, yeah, remember who John's writing to, churches under persecution, and he's basically saying, this is normal Christianity, and so, yes, God is sovereign, yes, God's going to get the final word, yes, God's going to judge his enemies on that final day of wrath, but in the meantime, until that happens, here's a reality that you need to deal with. So, chapter 12 forms what I consider the theological heart of the book to show us why the church suffers until Christ's return. When you talk to people that are in the prosperity, health, wealth, gospel, prosperity, word faith movement, what do they absolutely not want to come to grips with? That it could be God's will for you to suffer. You get sick, you don't have enough faith. If you're not rich, you didn't sow your seed to my ministry. If I don't drive the million, you know, if I don't fly the million dollar plane, you weren't obedient church members that filled my coffers. Okay, so we'll let the offering plate go around four or five more. I mean, I'm just saying the health, wealth, and prosperity, word faith, false gospel is killing the church today. Because what they're telling people, especially in third world countries, that are already struggling, and they're. T- I mean, I, I can tell you stories. When I talk to, I won't. I won't say the name because we're on Facebook Live. When we've gone to India and I've talked with our local pastors in India, they will tell you stories about how the prosperity gospels come in, and it just, it kills it. I've heard pastors in Africa talk about how it's killing the church in Africa, in third world countries where people are desperate and they already are superstitious. The word faith gospel comes in and just puts a Christian veneer on it and gives them what they've always been living for anyway, which is that desire to be rich, desire to not have their crops fail. The reality of the Christian life is we will suffer, we will be persecuted, we will be targets of hostility. Now, there's degrees of that, right? We're freely in a room tonight with no fear of the authorities coming in and dragging us off to prison. Now, if we were in the Sudan or North Korea, we couldn't openly teach like this. We wouldn't even have a building. We'd have to meet underground. So the, the level of persecution is, is, I would say, it's relativized based upon location. But nonetheless, to some extent, if you are true to Christ you will be persecuted. Now, this is not in my notes, but I'm just thinking about it. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4 for a minute. We talked about this in staff meeting this week. And it's kind of a good reminder. It's not in your notes. So, yeah, let me just write this on the board. 1 Peter 4. It's a parallel before we get into chapter 12 of, of Revelation. 1 Peter 4. 
uh, 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Let me just read this and make a few comments. I'm not gonna, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but let me just expose you to it so we can, we can hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter. Everybody there? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, what, is, what does Peter say? Yeah, number one, it's a fiery trial. And don't think it's strange. It's part of the Christian life to receive fiery trials. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. Okay, well, he goes on and says something counterintuitive in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Okay, <coughs> rejoice in your suffering. It's easy to tell you to do that, but it's one thing to actually do that. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's just stop right there. If you suffer for being a Christian, if you suffer because of the name of Christ, Glorify God in that name. So will you suffer for carrying the name of Christ? Yes. Now, Peter says, if you suffer for doing something stupid, that's because you did something stupid and you're paying the consequences. That's not, you know, that's, that's a dumb reason to suffer. He's like, if you're a murderer, or if, you know, like, I'm a murderer suffering for Jesus. No, you're a murderer. You know, you're not. But if you're truly suffering for the name of Christ, he says, bless God in that and revel in that, and rejoice in that. And so we get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the, the way I interpret it now, guys, I interpret chapter 12 as this is what's happening right now to the church. The dispensationalist view will say that this is happening during the seven-year tribulation, and it's not happening right now. So there's a difference of interpretation. So let's just go ahead. There's three scenes um, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through the end. And the ESV does a pretty good job of breaking those sections up in paragraphs so that you can kind of see the flow of thought. Uh, the ESV's done a pretty good job of breaking those three sections up. So let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. You guys ready? And a great sign, your translation may say portent or portal, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems or seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. Clear as mud, right? Okay, let's ask some questions. This is a sign. 
appeared in heaven, a symbol. So we've got to ask some interpretive questions. Okay, first ultimate obvious question here is, who is this woman? Clothed with sun, with moon under her feet, and on her head a crown with, with 12 stars who's about to give birth. Let me give you the options throughout church history. Okay? There's been four. Number one, this is Eve. Number two, the Roman Catholic view, this is Mary. This is exclusively Old Testament Israel. This is exclusively the New Testament church. What's my view? None of the four. Okay. Here's my view. The entire believing community of both Old and New Testament saints represents the community of faith that the woman is about to give birth. So the woman is both the community of faith as well as well, the, the woman is both the community of faith that produces the Messiah, Israel, as well as the community of faith that follows the Messiah, the church. Okay, so we have 12 stars, right? 12 stars. I would say that the 12 stars are symbolic of both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, thus being the entirety of God's people in both Testaments. Now, how do I get that? You may say, well, that's, that's kind of a weird interpretation, Pastor Sean. Back in chapter 7, I made the argument, and you can disagree with me, but I made the argument that the 144,000 and the great multitude were the same people, the same group. Okay, and it was the what? The totality of God's people, both Old and New Testament. Okay. In chapter 11, we've just talked about who? We talked about the church who are giving witness. Okay, And so I'm seeing that this woman here is not only Israel that gives birth to the Messiah. I don't think it's Mary. I don't think it's Eve. I think it's symbolic of Israel that gives birth to the Messiah, metaphorically, and then the church who follows the Messiah, both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Now, what's she doing in verse 2? She's pregnant. Remember, this is a sign. This is not literal. This is a symbolism. It's, it's a vision. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains, and she was giving birth. Now, here's the the interesting way that the Greek text is used here by John, the word agony there, she cried out in agony. That's the Greek word which elsewhere means persecution. So, she, so when she gives birth to the church, there is going to be persecution. Okay, so you've got, okay, so let me just, let, let's just say this. This is my interpretation. You can take it or leave it. I believe there's one people of God. There's one people of God. And that one people of God are those who have faith in Christ, who've been saved from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. 
made up of both Jew and Gentile. Now, who is the Old Testament about predominantly? Jews, okay? Was Jesus a Jew? Were the apostles Jewish? Did the early church, was the early church Jewish? What does Paul say in Romans 1.16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation of all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. So what did the Jews, did Israel, in fact, were they instrumental in bringing Jesus and the Messiah? Let's just put it this way. Was the, was the Jewish people instrumental in bringing Jesus into the world, his apostles into the world, and the birthing of the church? Yes. Jesus is Jewish, the apostles are Jewish, the early church was Jewish. Okay, but it, did it stop there? What happened? It went out to the whole world. Paul goes on his missionary journeys. Okay, so do you have two different churches? Okay, so you have the Jewish people over here, and then you have the Gentiles over here. And so you got two peoples of God. you got the Jews and the Gentiles. Never the two shall mix. Or what is the whole burden of Paul in the New Testament? God has made the two what? One people. There's one people of God. Christians, believers, saints, the elect, made up of both Jew and Gentile. But how did the Jewish church come into being? Was the, Jew, was the Gentile church first or was the Jewish church first? Jewish church was first, but it doesn't mean that the Gentile church has somehow replaced the Jewish church. The Jewish church doesn't include the Gentiles. It's, okay, yeah, it started with the Jews, and Jesus was Jewish, and the apostles were Jewish, and the early church was Jewish, but God's intention all along was to have one people of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Okay. So when it talks here about the woman giving birth, she's giving birth. Okay, so Israel is Israel's giving birth to the Messiah. Israel's giving birth to the church. Israel's giving birth to the apostles. The early stages of the church are all Jewish that this woman gives birth to. But at the same time, it's the whole people of God. It's the inclusion of the Gentiles. So this, this woman is not only Israel, but this woman also represents the church, the total people of God. Okay. That's character number one. We got a second character. Verse three, who's the, who's the second character introduced? The red dragon. Okay. Verse three, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and persecution. Verse three, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Okay, this is where Revelation ties to Exodus. It's been fun this week because I'm going to be preaching on the ten plagues this Sunday. It's like, man, everything you see in Revelation. I, I wish I, I'm thinking about preaching an, an entire sermon talking about how Exodus and Revelation mirror each other. Um, but I don't know how I can don't know how I'm going to do that. So, anyway, I don't want to preach it this Sunday because I finished it today. Um, but anyway, the imagery of a dragon evokes Old Testament imageries of the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's often called the great dragon. Ezekiel 29, 2-3. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Now, what are the famous creatures that swim through the Nile River? Crocodiles. Okay? Look kind of like dragons. Reptiles. Symbolically, Ezekiel's saying, the Pharaoh is like the great red dragon. Now, question. What did the Pharaoh do to God's people in the Old Testament? Came against them, persecuted them, harshly dealt with them. Okay? And then God basically cast him out in the Red Sea. Is this talking about Pharaoh here? Who's the great red dragon now? If the Old Testament imagery of the great red dragon was the Pharaoh that persecuted God's Old Testament people, who's the ultimate great red dragon? Satan. And Satan is going to do what? He's almost like a, if you think the personification of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, a harsh taskmaster that's keeping God's people in slavery and coming against them and attacking them and making life hard for them, that's the image that the red dragon is here, is that the red dragon is going to persecute. Look at the grotesque imagery here. What, I mean, this is grotesque. You have a woman on the bed about giving birth, and where's the dragon? He's there about ready to what? Eat what she gives birth to. Verse 4. Now, now this, is this where they get this image of, of the devil in the red jumpsuit? <laughs> That's a great question there, devil in the red jumpsuit. I don't know where the devil and the pitchfork and the red horns and the, the tail. It could come from this where he's the great red dragon with the tail, um, and it could have been in the Middle Ages or whatever they, they took that. I, I, I don't know exactly how that all came about. Um, it's a great theological question. It's a great theological question. Where the, where the, de- where the devil have his pitchfork and his red, his red jumpsuit? What did you call it, jumpsuit? <laughs> Verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Okay. This is from Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Okay, take you back to Daniel for a moment. In Daniel... This little horn is a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember a few weeks ago, I introduced Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the Syrian ruler that came in, slaughtered a pig to Zeus on the Temple Mount, burned the Bible, killed the priests. His period of reign, his period of persecution, Antiochus Epiphanes, how long did his persecution last? Three and a half years. Three and one half years. So when you come across three and one half years, or um, if it's in days, as we see here, um, 1,260 days, that's symbolic language for an extreme period of persecution. 
Okay, it's not a literal three and a half years. It's a, it's a symbolic number for an undefined time of persecution. Okay? Now, there's some debate here to what happens here in verse 4 where his tail sweeps down a third of the stars and casts them to earth. Some, there's two ways to view this. Some view it as fallen angels who rebelled with Satan. Others view it as martyrs who were persecuted by Satan. I tend to look at it more as the, the demons that fell with Satan. A third of the, a third of the angel, fallen angels. Okay. Either way you look at it, the devil is going to rage against God's people. Now, let me just say, where did the warfare between the Messiah and the serpent start? Genesis 3.15 is the interpretive grid for the entire Bible, pretty much. Genesis 3.15, there would be continuous enmity, there would be continuous warfare between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Okay, let me ask you some questions. Have there been attempts throughout history where Satan tried to stop the seed? Did Satan know which did Satan know who the Messiah was going to be? All he knew was that the woman, there was going to be a seed that came through Eve's lineage. What was the very first what happened to the very first kids? Cain murdered. Abel. Cain was from the seed. Cain represented the, the way of the serpent. Okay, then Seth had to come along. Okay, There were numerous attempts by Satan to wipe out God's people. Exodus at the beginning. The babies. What happened in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born? What did Herod do? What, what edict did Herod make when Jesus was born? Slaughter all the infants. And so where did Mary and Joseph have to go? Had to go to Egypt. So this image of Satan trying to eat the, the birth of, of this child is nothing new because it goes all the way back to Satan is always trying to prevent Jesus from coming. He can't do it, but he's tried all throughout history to somehow get that seed of the woman not to come because he knows if the seed of the woman comes, what's the seed of the woman going to do? Crush his head. Okay? Now, at the end of verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, the child here could be Jesus... And the child can be the church. Jesus or Jesus' people. Satan has already tried to prevent Jesus from coming and it didn't work. But is, G is, is Satan now trying to devour God's people? What does 1 Peter say? Satan roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, look at verse 5 about the child. 
She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay. That's Jesus. And what's he going to do? He's a male child, the seed of the woman. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, that goes back to Psalm 2 that we looked at earlier. Why do the nations rage? These must be out of order. Oh, yeah. In verse 5, we see a snapshot of Christ's entire life. His death, I mean, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Do you see it there? He was, verse 5, he was born. You got the birth of Christ. He ruled the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was what? Caught up to God and to his throne. One little condensed life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay. So the, the devil did not conquer Jesus. Jesus was born. Devil didn't stop it. Jesus lived a perfect life. Didn't Jesus, didn't Satan try to stop Jesus in the, in the, in the wilderness? Tempt him. And if he would have given in, you know, he would have, quote, unquote, you know, in Satan's mind, Jesus would have lost the whole thing because he disqualified himself by sinning. Now, obviously, that wasn't going to happen, but Satan tried to do that. Did Jesus die on the cross? Did Satan try to stop that? Didn't he tempt him? Judas? Did, did Satan stop Jesus from dying on the cross? Did, Jesus, or did Satan stop Jesus from rising again? No. Did Jesus, did, keep getting this wrong, did Satan stop Jesus from ascending to heaven? Did Satan stop Jesus from ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God? Is Satan going to stop Jesus from coming back? No. Satan can't stop Jesus. But who does he think he can stop? Us. If he, if he didn't, if it didn't work with Jesus, then his next target is Jesus' people. He's going to devour the church or try to devour the church or try to attack the church, okay? So verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, what in the world does this mean? I'll give you my interpretation, and um, we'll kind of explore it. If we take the woman to be symbolic of both the Old and New Testament saints, we need to understand what this means for her to be nourished in the wilderness for three and a half years. Okay, dispensationalists, I'm going to give you the dispensationalist view. I'm not a dispensationalist, but I'll give you the view. They see this as a future event where after the church has been raptured, Israel will be protected by God for a period of three and a half years during the tribulation. Okay? Now, all along we've been taking things symbolically. So let me ask you a question. Where else did God's people flee into the wilderness and were nourished? In the Exodus. Okay. When Israel fled Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they fled into the wilderness, which was a place of provision and protection. How did God sustain them in the wilderness? Manna, quail, water, provided shoes. Uh, Moses was the central figure. 1 Kings 17, 2 through 6, 
God provides for Elijah when he flees to the wilderness. Remember, he brings them ravens, bring him, was it bread or every day? Okay. This goes back to, okay, who's the main character in Exodus? Who's the other main character in Elijah? Moses and Elijah here, okay, are two people. Moses and Elijah are the two people that were fed in the wilderness. What did we say last week? We didn't say these were literally Moses and Elijah. We said these are representative of the entire church. Now, this is symbolic, I believe, of God's spiritual, spiritual, a key word there, provision and protection of the church. For how long? Is it a literal three and a half years? Or is it a symbolic time of opposition against God's people between the first coming and the second comings of Christ. Okay. So here's the overall imagery. If you're a dispensationalist, this doesn't apply to you. This doesn't apply to us. Okay. So if you're a dispensationalist, tune out. It doesn't apply to us. You're going to be raptured. This is the, the Jews during the tri- seven-year tribulation, three and a half years. You don't have to worry about it. But if this is about you, then you may want to be prepared just to be in case. So what's the overall imagery here? The devil hates Jesus. I talked about this on Sunday. The devil hates the church, yet Christ conquers through his cross and his resurrection. We as his followers must still deal with Satan until Christ comes back. God promises us spiritual protection and provision while we wait. Okay. So whether you're a dispensationalist or not, what's the one thing we can agree upon? Until... Either you're raptured or Christ comes back or you're dead. Are you going to experience persecution from the world? Is Satan going to attack you? Okay, yes. So that's a reality. So the question then becomes, if that's a reality, how do we deal with it? Okay. So scene two, verses seven through 12, addresses why the woman, which I take to be symbolic of all of God's people, Why does she have to flee into the wilderness? Why does she have to go into spiritual protection? Here's the answer. Satan's wrath is unleashed against the church on earth as he has lost his place and his position in heaven. So let's, let's read verses 7 through 10. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated... And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay. Thrown down is repeated a lot there. He was thrown down. He was thrown down. He was kicked out. Okay. Question. Okay. When did this throwing down out of heaven occur there's two views here and and i and i as i've read these notes i could probably i could probably go with both of them even though i said i believe in one of them i could probably believe in both of them at the same time well maybe two of them um this explains what happened before the creation of the earth when satan lost his position as an angel I, i i can buy that okay the Bible doesn't give a lot of details about how Satan was kicked out of heaven, 
But here, where's this war taking place? Is it taking place on earth? Taking place on heaven. Where's Satan thrown down to? The earth. Okay, so this is probably a good explanation of how Satan lost his place in heaven, and now his realm is the, the earth. Okay. Others, the dispensationalist view, will say this happens in the future during the seven-year tribulation. This war in heaven is going to go on sometime during the seven-year tribulation, and then that's when Satan is going to be thrown down to the earth to persecute the Jews after the three and a half years, the second half of the seven-year tribulation. Um, there's one that I think may be the best interpretation. I, I still think that... The, the, before, before time when Satan was cast down is a good one. But here is, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan's power to deceive the nations and keep them in blindness was conquered. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Can Satan attack? Yes. Can Satan ultimately stop God's plan of seeing people become Christians? Can, God, can Satan deceive people? Okay. Can he ultimately deceive people and prevent Christians from becoming, or people from becoming Christians? Okay. So there's a statement that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 10 that gives reference to this whole idea of Satan falling. And this is before Jesus dies. Luke 10, 17 through 21. This is when Jesus sends out the, 70, sends out the um, 72. They go out two by two. They're going into the towns. They're healing the sick. The demons are obeying them. They're having great evangelistic success. They come back. It's kind of like mission trip. They come back and let's have a debrief. And they're all excited. And, and Jesus is kind of, kind of explained theologically uh, what's going on. So Luke 10, 17 through 21. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Okay. Let's just give you some op- let me give, just give you some observations here about Satan and what he can and cannot do. What he does and does not do. Number 1. Satan's accusations no longer have any legal or moral force following his defeat at the cross. If you're a Christian and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, His righteousness has been imputed to you. You stand permanently in a position of being justified. Can Satan bring an accusation against you that's going to stick? He cannot. He cannot. Now, he's going to accuse you and he's going to slander you, but they they no longer have any force at all against you. Okay? Also, another observation is somehow Michael and his elect angels are more powerful than Satan and his demons, which gives you some encouragement. There was a war in heaven, and the, and the good angels won. <laughs> okay? That gives you some encouragement. Now, verse 10 gives us four different names or descriptions of Satan. I think verse 10 of, of, of Revelation chapter 12 is probably the most definitive passage of Scripture in one verse that gives you the character of Satan. 
John 8's pretty clear when Jesus says he's the father of lies and because he speaks out of his own nature. He's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But listen to the, to the wording that's used here. Okay. Number one, he's called that ancient serpent. Okay. Why is he the ancient serpent? What's that in reference to? Genesis chapter 3, where he slithered into the garden. He's called the devil. Okay, that's the word accuser, accuser or slanderer. He's going to accuse you. He's going to slander. He's going to bring charges up against you. Satan, that word means adversary. He's your enemy. He's your opposer. And then also, he's the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus says in John 12, 31 through 33, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So when Jesus died on the cross, the ruler of this world was thrown down in the sense that Satan has no legal, binding, unlimited authority over a believer because we are in Christ. Now, what does verse 11 tell us to do? Verse 11. Let's look at verse 10, I'm sorry. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We sing that Sunday, right? For they love not their lives even unto death. So how do we conquer Satan? It's the wrong question, right? Paul would say to stand. What does Ephesians 6 tell us to do? We don't win the victory. Christ has already won the victory. We stand in the victory He's already won. Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Four times in that passage, he says, stand. Okay? That's Paul's way of saying, how do you fight the battle? You stand in the full armor of God. What's John saying here? How do you conquer Jesus? by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of the testimony. Now, what this does not mean is this. It doesn't mean that you destroy Satan. That doesn't happen until Revelation 20 when he gets thrown into the lake of fire. It doesn't mean that we put a permanent end to his attacks. Just because Satan attacked you once, does that mean he's not going to ever come back? By the way, This is just a personal opinion, so I don't, it's a personal opinion, so I'm just going to give you my editorial opinion. You can say that's totally whack, Pastor Sean, and we can move on. I'm not sure that Satan himself bothers with people like you and me. I think he sends his demons to deal with people like you and me. I think Satan deals with people of high position 
and people that have high influence that if their fall is going to happen, it's going to be greater. And because their influence is higher, it, there's going to, they're going to have more power. doesn't mean Satan won't attack you, but I'm saying that probably in the hierarchy of spiritual forces, probably we get attacked is by just your common everyday demon. And like rulers of nations and high political figures and strong church leaders, maybe even pastors, maybe Satan puts more attention on those types of people than he does on, I hate to say, normal Christians. Now, that's just an opinion. I don't know if I have any Bible backing for that um, because it does say that Satan does roam around looking for someone to devour. But this passage does seem to teach a hierarchy of spiritual forces, um, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. Um, I don't know how all that works. Okay. And it doesn't mean that Satan can't kill Christians through persecution. Can Satan kill Christians through persecution? You know, we saw that back in Revelation 2.10. Antipas was killed in the church in, in Smyrna. Okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean that we conquer the dragon, we conquer the accuser? What does it mean? It, it means this. We can trust in the power of the gospel to say no to sin. Do you have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin? Can you as a Christian say, I can't help it, I can't say no. I mean, it's just who I am. I, I, I don't have any control over what I do. Can you say that? As a, I mean, you can say that, but is that true of you? As a Christian, you have been given the Holy Spirit. You can say no to sin. You can withstand the temptations when Satan brings those to you. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it also means we can remain strong in our faith in Christ and persevere to the end. Okay. So two specific things are mentioned here in how we fight the battle, how we stand Okay, so he says there in verse 11, they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay, so what is the blood of the lamb? What's the primary way we conquer Satan, we stand against Satan? The gospel. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We put on the full armor of God. We, we, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We live in the gospel. We talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We talk about who we are in Christ. We talk about what it means to be saved. The second is the word of our testimony. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this talking about your personal testimony of how you got saved? Or is it talking about the testimony that you give to the gospel? Let me ask it a different way. What saves a person, your testimony or the gospel? The gospel. Does that mean you shouldn't share your testimony? No. But if you share your testimony and don't share the gospel, you haven't shared the gospel. Because guess what? I could walk into this room and say, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. He made my life better. He made my life happier. I no longer have any problems. I, I'm stress-free. I'm debt-free. Jesus gave me joy galore. A Buddhist could walk in here and say, let me tell you how Buddha changed my life. I've got better friends. I've got, I'm happier. I've got more inner peace. I've got more karma. I may be reincarnated as an ant and not as a gnat. <laughs> Oprah could come in here and say, hey, I've got a bunch of authors that I read their book and they, they changed my... So 
you could parade a bunch of people in here that can give a testimony of how their life's been changed by a certain belief system. And in our world of ideas, when you keep parading in different testimonies, what's somebody going to say to your testimony? I'm not saying you shouldn't tell your, tell your testimony. What can somebody say? I'm glad that worked for you. Let me tell you how this worked for me. And all you're doing is comparing your testimonies. Now, you, you, your testimony is powerful, but is your testimony what's going to save them? The gospel is what saves them. So yes, share your testimony, but more importantly, you got to share the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the call for all people everywhere to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? That's how we conquer. Now, they loved not their lives even unto death. In some cases, in some cases, not all, but in some, testifying to Jesus may cost your life. You may be martyred for your faith. Not absolute. Probably not going to happen to a lot. But there are some. And so the gospel should be more important to us than life itself because Jesus is our ultimate treasure. Now, verse 12 is very, very important. Verse 12 talks about the reality of this warfare. So I'm going to give you guys an illustration. So let's, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay. Is Satan a vanquished enemy? Yet. Ultimately. Not ultimately yet. Has Satan been defeated on the cross? Is Satan still alive and well? What's Satan's final... What's the, what's the final destiny of Satan? The lake of fire. Okay. So between now and the lake of fire, what's Satan doing? He's wreaking havoc. Okay. Let me give you guys some World War II history. You guys remember D-Day? Okay. D-Day was the massive strike of the Allied forces. They, they, they stormed the beach in Normandy. And what did they do? They pushed back. For all intents and purposes, D-Day was pretty much the end of World War II strategically. But the war didn't end until another year. So in between D-Day and VE, Victory in Europe Day, there was a battle that was in between D-Day and VE Day. It's called the Battle of the Bulge. It was the bloodiest battle of World War II where most of the soldiers died. Because here's what Hitler thought. Hitler knew at Normandy, at D-Day, I'm defeated. I can't win this war. So what I'm going to do in the time I have left, I'm going to try to blow up as many people and cause as many casualties as I can and go out in a blaze of glory. So I'm going to ramp up the Battle of the Bulge until eventually he was overtaken. Third Reich got conquered. Satan is kind of like Hitler. He knows he's been conquered on the cross, D-Day. He knows VE Day is coming, victory in Europe. So in the meantime, he's waging the Battle of the Bulge. He's doing as much havoc as he can because he knows his time is short. So what's going to happen to God's people if they hold to the blood of the Lamb 
and to the testimony of the gospel. Here's what's going to happen. The more we advance the gospel, the more people get saved, the more Christ is exalted, the more Satan's going to ramp up his attack. Do you think Satan attacks apostate churches? He doesn't have to. When people start getting saved, when the gospel goes forward, when you start to um, live for Christ, that's where Satan's going to ramp up his attacks. Because what's, what's the last thing he wants? People to come to faith in Jesus. He wants them to be blinded. But the gospel will prevail. We will conquer. What does verse 11 say? They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The authority of Christ will prevail. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't get bruised or battered along the way. We won't be persecuted or injured. But in the end, Christ will, should be win. In the end, Christ will end. Should be win. Christ will win through the gospel. Colossians 2, 13 and 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, one of the, you guys know the words to a mighty fortress is our God? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, who's our ancient foe? doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. He's armed with cruel hate to come against us. All through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. If demons come and try to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. There's been a lot of debate over what that one little word is. It's going to make Satan fall. What did Martin Luther mean by that? I take it to mean the gospel. Okay. All right. Verses 13 through 17. Are we going to finish this? Yeah, we probably will. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, this picks up with the woman or the believing community of faith in the wilderness. And the church is being pursued by Satan. Who pursued the Israelites out of Egypt? Pharaoh chased them out. Okay, It's Exodus imagery. This whole idea of being on eagle's wings, getting into the wilderness. The wings of the great eagle is a metaphor for God's protection and provision in the wilderness. God even says it in Exodus 19.4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All throughout Exodus, the imagery of God bringing the nation of Israel through the Red Sea is, okay, I did it by the power of my right hand, and I did it on eagles' wings. I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you in. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. And he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading on its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Okay? Now, how does the devil attack the church here? It's interesting. He spews water out of his mouth to try to flood us. Now, does that mean that if you're a Christian, you walk down the street, the devil's going to come up and spit on you? Okay, this is all metaphorical. I mean, that would be really scary to be spit on by the devil. But um, it's a flood. Okay, it, the serpent, verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. Okay, in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus when you have a big one, we see God's enemies coming like a flood and it's representative of, of opposition or persecution. So you go back and you look at Psalm 88.7, Isaiah 43.2, Psalm 18.4, 2 Samuel 22.5. All the enemies of God come like a flood. So this imagery of Satan coming like a flood is taking that Old Testament imagery of he's just coming at us, just coming at us, wants to drown us, wants us to take us out. But can he do that? What happens to him? He's protected. The church is sealed, chapter 7. The church is measured, chapter 11. They will not be totally overtaken by the devil. Verse 16. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 16, 18? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not. What? Prevail against it. Now, there's another definition here of the church. So, what did we say back in verse 11? How are we to live our lives? We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. At the end of verse 17, what does it say there? Those who what? Keep the commandments of God. That's obedience and repentance. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, that's the doctrine and your confession of faith. Okay, so let's just talk about the life of a Christian. What is the most important way you stand against the devil? You live a life of obedience and you hold fast to sound doctrine. So it's your, it's your life and your beliefs. Yeah, saturating yourself in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So what's the bottom line of chapter 12? Here's the bottom line. Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates the church. He hates you. 
He will stop at nothing to destroy the advancement of the gospel because He knows His time is short. Therefore, because He's doing this, we must stand strong in the face of opposition through radical obedience to Jesus, those who hold, who keep His commandments, and those who have a solid adherence to the gospel, even if that means to the point of death at times. So chapter 12 tells us the reality of where we live every day. If you name the name of Christ, if you hold fast to His testimony, if you hold fast to His commandments, if you hold fast to the gospel, if you name the name of Christ, you're an ongoing target for the enemy because he knows his time is short. He can attack you, but he can't have you. He can tempt you, but he can't have victory over you. He can wreak havoc, but he can't destroy. Don't ask me why God allows it. He does. Doesn't explain why. Job wanted to know why, but it's a reality. You can fight against it and say, that's not fair. God, I don't like it. Why, why is it happening this way? Or you can say, this is the way God set up the universe, and here's how I live in light of that. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb, word of our testimony. We are those who keep the commandments of God, and we hold to the testimony of Jesus, even if that means to the point of death. Okay? we got some time left. What kind of questions do you guys have? Well, this is a non-dispensational view. Mm-hmm. And we take that for all of Revelation, I believe. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you stand on the rest of the Bible? Do you consider yourself a dispensationalist? Or? On the rest of the Bible? Or is it only Revelation where you can you take the non-dispensationalist? Yeah, it's only, I think, yeah, it's only... I would not. I don't come to the Bible with a dispensational hermeneutic in the sense that I view the Bible as God has two separate plans for Jews and Gentiles. Um, I come more as a covenant theologian, where God has operated in different ways throughout the Bible, but it's always the same idea of saving people by grace through faith. I'm, I guess I'm not sure exactly what you're. What you're Heard of people that are dispensationalists. I mean, that was the term. Yeah, yeah, and there's and it's a it's the popular and, view. And I don't. No, which I'm one not you? I'm saying I really understand what all that. Yeah. Means, other than I know dispensationalism is, is periods of time. Yeah, there's there's usually seven dispensations that they've divided the world. Yeah, and, and then yeah, and then yeah. some people. Yeah, so it depends on like there's classic dispensationalists, there's progressive dispensationalists, and then there's modified dispensationalists, yeah. and then there's new covenant. Theologians, there's covenant theologians, there's amillennial, pan-millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial. It's like my son; he's taking a systematic theology class every Monday at noon. He must he must take this class because every Monday at noon I get a text, Dad, aren't you an amillennialist? I'm like sometimes. He's like, what do you mean sometimes? <laughs> Whichever the wind blows, Aiden. I'm not sure what in what, what in times view I have. It depends on you know. No, but go ahead. mess with God's people like Job. Oh, yeah. And, and, and God says, okay, I'll let you, let you do that, and I'm going to show you something through this. Not just him, all of the heavenly hosts, the 
it's almost like he's he got this mineral learning curve. <laughs> he's saying, you know, I'm going to teach you all how God's people, when they obey me, it's not, I'm not making them do it. They're doing it because they love me. Right. And I can say that. Gets mad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. That was kind of the point of Job. The whole point of Job, Satan says, does, does, does Job serve you for nothing? Meaning the only reason Job is serving you, God, is because of all the good things you're giving him. Take these things away and he won't serve you. And God says, okay. And what does Job do? And all of that, he did not sin. Because Christ was, he was more concerned with loving Jesus than he was with getting the stuff from Jesus. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions, or snide remarks? Yes. Going back to on page seven here, but um, about I've always thought that when Satan's thrown down to earth, mm -hmm. it seems to me like that was the predecessor to Eve, and, and, and that was mm -hmm. the way I had always kind of. Yeah, and I, I said that's a valid interpretation that it happened. Because then we know that a third of heaven was. Mm -hmm. Out and I almost see that as a ramification of Satan being begone. Yeah, I think the, I think it's a both and. I think before time, sometime in the cosmic universe, right. Satan and his demons were thrown down. Okay, that accounts for why he's the prince of the rule of the air. Right. Okay. And so he could deceive the nations. He he could deceive Eve. He could he could move in and out, but. Something happened definitively when Jesus came because in his death, burial, and resurrection, it says he disarmed Satan. He saw Satan fall like lightning. So in a sense, he was kind of in a metaphorical sense thrown down in the cross to where he was disarmed from ultimately having power. Because I've always seen it as that Satan, Satan knew he was defeated mm -hmm. in the garden. Yeah. Satan knew he was done. Yeah. It was just a mess. Yeah. Crushed, yeah. And yet he'll still bite at his heel. Yeah, and that was a curse pronounced to Satan. So he heard it from God Himself. So it wasn't like Satan didn't have the information. And like I said Sunday, you don't think Satan's read the Bible? He's read the Bible. He knows the end. You can't tell me he's not read Revelation 20. All these years, he knows his time is short. That's why he's going to wreak as much havoc. And he knew his time was short in the garden when that announcement, because that was his first attempt to try to usurp God's power. And God said, I'm pronouncing that curse. He just didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. So every, every move, Satan's trying to stop what God's doing. Never could do it because God sovereignly brought the lineage. Think of all the prophecies it took to get Jesus to be born. Just Bethlehem. Everything had to be right. Quirinius was governor. I mean, the star, the wise. I mean, every, everything had to work perfectly to bring about the birth of Christ. Satan couldn't stop any of that. God sovereignly orchestrated all of that. Anything else? Yes, Dennis. Angels Messiah, have you seen that uh, in a setting mm -hmm. before at a certain place? Yeah, NJC, what was it, six, seven, eight years ago, the uh, Master Chorale, you guys did Handel's Messiah at Christmas time. It was about ten years, about seven, eight years ago. It was about seven, eight years ago. Yeah, they did it in JC at the, at the. Um, I think there's a church in Kansas that does it every. Mm -hmm. every I got to tell you guys a story about that. 
Um, when I was a kid, our family would go to Glorieta, which is this big camp in um, New Mexico. And, and Holcomb Auditorium is this big, huge auditorium. And um, I, was, I fell asleep during the preaching. This guy from Scotland was preaching, and I fell asleep. I, I don't even remember who it was, probably some famous guy, but I was a little kid. And, um, next th- and I fell asleep, and they were singing the Hallelujah Chorus. So I woke up to... He shall reign. And I woke up and I looked at my mom and said, are we in heaven? That's what I said. Are we in heaven? I, th- I thought we'd died and gone to heaven. I woke up because the music was so, you know, that there's like a hundred person choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus, you know. I, sing, I had the opportunity to sing that in high school. Yeah. Cool. It's amazing how much the gospel is in that. When you actually look at the words to Handel's Messiah, it's, it's really full of the gospel. It's coming from a Jewish man. Wasn't Handel... No, I'm thinking of Felix Mendelssohn. Yeah. Mendelssohn was Jewish. Yeah, Handel was, was a believer. Yeah. I'm getting my composer's <laughs> ethnicities mixed up. Anything else? Good to go? All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, help us just to remember. If we don't remember anything, Lord, help us just remember that we stand firm with the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, that we hold fast our confession. We have to have sound theology, and Lord, we have to be those that are repentant and obedient. So Lord, help us to live that type of life where we hold fast to your truth. Lord, help us to never get over the gospel. Help us to always preach the gospel to ourselves. Jesus, thank you that you conquered once and for all. You disarmed Satan, and um, he has no hold upon us. Help us to stand in that victory this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.